Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. And welcome back to Script Shop, everybody. Hi there. I'm Jack Crumley. And I'm Allison West. And we are talking with Ron Podell today. He has written a script called Concrete Jungle. This is a it's a narrative short. This is different from your standard straightforward uh, ABC three-act story. It's extremely cool. It's based on a poem that he wrote. He's going to go into all that for us, though. Uh, do want to provide a word of warning on this one. There are some, let's say, adult, mature themes involved in this uh, in this story. So if you're a little kid, make sure you got the volume turned way down. Or if you're a weenie grown-up, get it together. That's exactly right. That's It, it, it cuts both ways. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Queen City Moto, in, at, located at 1905 Providence Street in Cincinnati, Ohio, 45214. We love those guys. We thank them so, so much for letting us shoot all of our great promo photos in their space. Huge props to those guys. So um, if you're looking for a place that specializes in restorative motorcycle repair, you should look them up on Facebook or call them at 513-432-0668 and ask for Scott, the sweetest moto dude in town. Yeah. Say hi to Scott for us too, if you don't mind. Also, big thank you to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for providing us with support and a space to do this show in. Greatly, greatly appreciated. It's a beautiful facility, and we're very happy to be here. In addition to what we're happy about, we would be happy if you followed us online, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are there. Look for a script shop. Please give us a follow. Shoot us a comment. Uh, tell us your thoughts. Send us a picture of your dog or cat. We like dogs. Yeah. Pictures we, are fun no matter what. We like dags. We like, I guess, social media is really the point there. <laughs> Be social with us on media. We don't have many friends. But we're hoping to change that. So please uh, <laughs> check us out. Uh, we'll be cool to you. And if you are a writer or somebody involved in the entertainment industry, in addition to getting in touch with us, we love, love, love reading your work. So if you're interested in sending in your script submissions, you can do it to scriptshopthepodcast at gmail.com. Come change our lives with your words. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, let us help uh, get your stuff out there. So speaking of getting people's stuff out there, let us introduce our guest. He is live with us from Austin, Texas. Ron Podell, how are you? I'm all right. How are you, Jack and Allison? Doing very well. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time. How are things going in Austin, by the way? He's at a film festival, people. He's rocking the festival scene today. Um, so far, so good. I mean, this is the uh, second year in a row I've attended. Uh, I'm pretty good friends with James Christopher, the festival director. This is the Austin um, I- Revolution Film Festival, just for those interested. Yes, exactly, and um, it's really it's really a good festival. I mean, that's why I came back. I had a great time last year. and met some good people, and uh, they have the films at the wonderful Alamo Draft House where you can order drinks and food and oh, watch yeah. your films. And then today we've got a lot going on at the Doubletree Hotel at the University of Texas, Austin, including the uh, fun drive-in night with the horror films. So um, there's a lot of panels and seminars and 
there's really a lot for everybody. It just goes from 9 a.m. to about 1.30 this morning, so it's going to be pretty busy. Ron, what's the, uh, what's the cookie scene there at the hotel? Um, uh, probably too much for me. I usually have two a day of the dog. <laughs> Can you ever have too many cookies, though? Oh, my God. I mean, the double tree, it's 310 calories per cookie. So <laughs> keep it to two a day. <laughs> well, you know, you're walking around and getting to the next screening, getting to the next event. You're burning it off, right? I hope so. <laughs> Listen, man, you can't eat cookies all day if you don't start in the morning. You're, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have time to order room service, so I had to get something to jack my mind up for this interview. Oh, man. Yeah, because we're just going to grill the heck out of you with this script, I'm sure. So, okay. Ron, talk to us a little bit about uh, Concrete Jungle. Tell us about yourself. Where did this where did this script come from for you? Well, um, it's probably the most unique script I wrote. I mean, first of all, my name's Ron Todell. I live in Laramie, Wyoming, that great bastion of filmmaking. Um, <laughs> but it's very quiet, and it's great for writing, especially with the long winters. Um, Do you need a lot concrete- of quiet time to write? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it's just like, there's not a lot of distractions. It's not like LA or Vegas, um, where it would be harder to write. Um, it's, I live in the mountains. Um, it's a town of 30,000. Uh, the winters are long. I mean, I, I got my sports and things like that, but like, yeah, I mean, it's like, I usually write in my den, but sometimes I mix it up and I go to the coffee shop or the bar or sometimes even write scenes. Uh, listening to a band, whatever kind of mood I need to write. Mm. Um, and, and YouTube comes in handy a lot because to get moods for scenes, I listen to a lot of music often um, to kind of get that subconscious thing out of me and, and, and get me in some kind of rhythm that I need for a particular scene. Has music always been important in your life? I think so. I, I probably don't listen as much as I should. I mean, I think I make it all up on long road trips where I just constantly am listening. But, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think it does, and I think music actually improves your writing by listening to it. I think, it, I think it's probably the hardest art form because I can't play an instrument, I can't sing to save my life, but I, I appreciate it much more than writing. But I think there's a, there's a poetry and fluidity to it that I think does help my writing. Well, and I think music certainly informed uh, this piece of writing that you've got uh, here with Concrete Jungle for sure. Oh, it, it absolutely did. Um, uh, I think I mentioned Allison briefly in an email. Um, back when I was in college, um, I started listening to Bruce Springsteen a lot and really, believe it or not, didn't really know much about him in high school. Um, but a friend of mine in my fraternity turned me on to his music, and we, we'd often just sit there hours and listen uh, to his albums. And like, He really is a poet. I mean, he can really talk about the working class man's struggles and, and everything. And just, I mean, his words are incredible. And I've been to a couple of his concerts and they're like quite epic three hours and so forth. So you get your money's worth. Um, but anyway, um, I just got in this mode once where the um, literary magazine at my college uh, was looking for some writing or some pieces to put in their magazine. And I just, because I was listening to him so much, I thought I'd take a shot at writing something like him. So I think I kind of channeled him in a way. And, and I, I, uh, I believe like Jungle Land, that long nine, ten minute song he wrote for the Born to Run album, was probably somewhat of an inspiration. Because I had never been to New York City before I was 19 years old. 
And for some reason, I just wrote this poem, and they ended up using it in the center spread of the literary magazine. What? What? Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was our college magazine. It wasn't like, you know, uh, Vogue or something. It's still a publication. It's a beginning for you as a young person. Yeah, man, you got published. Right, right. And I mean, basically, I was there to major in journalism and sports writing, and and that's what I was. I was sports editor to the paper and so forth. Really? Well, good for you for getting out of that. Oh, Jack. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So um, I want to just back up a little bit. So you went to college for journalism and sports writing. Um, Did you grow up in Wyoming? And what led you into sports writing as a major for school? Oh, I actually grew up in Valparaiso, Indiana, um, and I'd always watched sports since I was a little kid, like uh, baseball, basketball, football, track, and I, I think when I was a little kid, I wanted to be Marv Albert, but I didn't have the voice, but I'd turn down the TV, and I'd put out the microphone, and I'd, I'd call the games, you know. Oh, that is so, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's extremely Midwest. That's very cool. Do you know we're in Cincinnati, Ohio right now? Right. So we're right on that Midwest train. Right, exactly. And um, so then the sophomore year of high school, I joined the newspaper, and I wrote sports and and got my feet wet. But it was my junior year. um, We had a newspaper called the Cherokee Chatter because that was uh, the the (laughs) Cherokees were our um, mascot, I guess, back when it was. Not exactly correct, but I remember when it was okay to have Indian mascots. And um, I, uh, I was a sports editor, and I always did, like, in, in addition to our stories, uh, I did the picks of the week. Like, I'd pick all the games in northwest Indiana. And the editor for the uh, Vidat Messenger, our local paper, noticed my percentage was better than him because he did picks, and I did Podell's picks. And he noticed that I was getting better percentages than him. Uh-huh. So he called me one day and said, uh, well, what's your method? How do you come up with your um, strategies? And I kind of told him. So that led to getting an assignment to cover a Valpo basketball game when he was on vacation. And then ultimately a couple of years later when I was in college, they hired me uh, for a sports writing internship. Well, that's a lot of pressure, man. If you're if you're the the guy who's making the picks, I mean, people are spending money, you know, gambling on that sort of thing. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> what? Well, I hope we didn't have high school students betting on games based on my. Picks. I mean, people bet on all sorts of stuff. I yeah, you be know surprised. the you know the dirty side of life, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> but I would often not even pick our own home school, and some kids respected that but the coaches hated it oh yeah that's another kind of pressure yeah he'd come in the hallway and say you know you're not giving our kids much confidence and i said i'm just being honest i don't think they're gonna win but if i think they're gonna win i'm gonna (laughs) do better coach (laughs) yeah so i think he knew i was right but he just didn't like it did you end up traveling around a bit then? So, you know, Indiana to Wyoming, what's the story from one place to the other? Well, there was a lot of places in between because uh, when I got out of college, I mean, my goal was to move to Florida, live on the beach and work in a newspaper. And um, it didn't work out right away that way. But that's what I told my journalism professor I wanted. But I did work like I think two weeks out of school, I was working at a little rural paper in Rensselaer, Indiana, you know, just a little community of 5,000. 
and I got my feet wet uh, with hard news, straight news, and put in about 10 months there. But I saved my money, and I had a friend down in Florida that I went to college with who said, you know, if you need a place to stay and get started, you can come to Florida. So, uh, you know, I was a groomsman in his wedding, and I said, well, I'll give you a time because you got the honeymoon period. I don't want to be down there then. But um, eventually I called him the next spring and said, hey, is that offer still open? He said, yeah. So I packed up my car with whatever I had and $800 and moved down to Florida. And then three weeks later, I had a, a job as an education reporter at the Winter Haven News Chief. So I've worked in Florida at newspapers. I worked in Maryland as an investigative uh, journalist, um, covered uh, national transportation and some newsletters in D.C. And you are just I've blowing my ed. mind right now. You yeah, have... I was, I've been in higher ed for a while. I've worked at Eastern Michigan University. I was editor of their faculty staff paper. And then now I'm at the University of Wyoming, and I basically interview our uh, researchers and try to decipher their science into something tangible that the average reader can understand. Wow, that's very, I mean, it's extremely renaissance man of you, Ron. That's a, that covers a lot of ground. Well, yeah, you know, you meet tons of people. Like, I could say anywhere from Bill Clinton down to a little Latino boy who lived in basically maybe a five-by-five hut with a dirt floor who got a scholarship um, and I think meeting all these different people in all walks of life, and I'm very observant of people, I pick up mannerisms, tics, and speech flows. I think when I did decide to start screenwriting, I had this whole treasure trove hall to pull from to create characters. Um, so I do think my wide experience of interviewing and talking to people has helped me understand people. And so I can get deep down into characters and when I write my scripts. Yeah, the more people that you meet, the more people that you interact with, that's just going to inform the work that much more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of, I think a lot of really good screenwriters um, that are like working on A-list pictures, a lot of them are former uh, reporters. I think Steve Zalian... Um, he worked at the Washington Post for a long time before he he became a screenwriter and some others as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a good way to be informed and uh, be able to write characters and people. Yeah, that because it, it, it gives you just a wider breadth of, uh, of of the human experience. And when you're trying to do a story like Concrete Jungle or anything else, you, the, the more variety you can have, the better. Right. And the funny thing is, and I know we got so far off your original question, but you're bringing me back. On Concrete Jungle, I'd never been to New York City at age 19, so I just wrote in my imagination what I thought the lower underbelly of New York City might be like. And it's funny, years later when I did visit, and I've gone four or five times, I often saw people like this, the homeless. And, uh, you know, I remember when um, uh, my mind is losing at the moment – What's the big area in Manhattan downtown? I'm talking like Times Square? Times Square. I remember seeing 15, 16-year-old hookers in their little furs, and I just thought it was the saddest little thing. And I was going, I wrote about that. I mean, not that I really knew about it, but when I did get to New York City, a lot of it was exactly how I imagined it would be for those kind of people. And but I was in my own mind, I was trying to bring them up and at least give them some recognition that they were still human beings and that 
their lives did matter and that they did have goals and that they were trying. I know in New York City is a cold place or can be, and people often just walk by what they don't understand and just keep going. And they are kind of like the forgotten people. But I think because of listening to Springsteen so much, he, he would always try to remind us that there's other kinds of people out there that have it rough. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly what I was trying to do. And then when I, when I saw these people, I go, Oh yeah, I, I, I think I did. I did think I kind of hit the mark. Well, I definitely agree. And we're going to, we're going to read a log line from your script so that we can just jump into some more of this, uh, more okay. about your process and more about the themes so, Concrete Jungle, Logline, we have Mean Streets, as if inspired by Springsteen. The narrator, speaking in poem, guides the story of street hustlers and the downtrodden doing what they can to survive in the concrete jungle. And for our listeners, Ron, could you just set the tone and the setting, the year, the place? We've talked about him being inspired by New York and Springsteen and maybe, as you say, the downtrodden, but tell us a little bit about where and when exactly this is taking place. Um, in my mind, it was in the late 80s, um, before New York was Disneyized a little bit. Um, it was still kind of a really gritty place. Um, and I just kind of had a sort of a dark, foreboding tone that I tried to set right off the bat with the overhead look of New York City and um, I kind of pictured it in my mind, like sort of shot like Raging Bull with the, you know, very black and whites that kind of mythologize these characters and um, just really dark and gritty. And it's a part of the world that a lot of people don't see or would rather not see. Um, but, you know, it, I tried to always have some sense of glimmer of hope for these people um, and then to show that they're human as well. Yeah, and that I think that shows through in the script. Uh, do we want to do... A- yeah, so we're going to read a selection from the script for all of the listeners. I do just okay. want to point out, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, that this was originally written just as a poem, and Ron later expanded it into a short script. The poem is the character of the narrator now, which is going to be read by Jack, and I will be doing all of the stage directions. So, Ron, whenever you feel like it, call action, and we'll begin. (laughs) I'm trying to find my clapboard. (laughs) (laughs) Good man. (laughs) All right, action. Beneath the sign, the hookers are lined up along the street, hustling another night's worth of business. Reggie, his hands squeezed firmly on the queen prostitute's neck, whispers something nasty into her ear, points a finger hard on her cheek. She nods, fearful. Reggie pushes her forward toward the action. And the businessmen step out into the foreboding dark, looking to triumph and make their evening mark. Fancy cars slowly roll up, one right behind the other in parade-like fashion. Cruising in their red convertibles, their passion trap machines, looking for the word, some pleasure tip to some coy French cuisine. The men in each car give the prostitutes a once-over. Some as if they are viewing exotic zoo animals. The queen prostitute, now pushing 50, flashes what she's got left, no longer so confident. And the hookers are like a chorus line out on 52nd Street. It's their way of survival as their vanishing dreams lie beneath their awry feet. The hookers clamor and stumble in their high heels and platform shoes to the edge of the street, 
jostling like photographers at a red carpet event. Something's going down. They're shooting the breeze. But it ain't just talk in this unholy town. The businessman, now 30, and behind the wheel of a Mercedes-Benz, smiles and laughs with a busty Hispanic hooker who shakes her ample goods as enticement. Because soon they'll be playing for keeps and filling their slot machines. The businessman is about to close the deal when he notices the young Lolita, now 22, standing away and just back from the throng. She sees him too. Their eyes lock. Warmth and intimate remembrance. The businessman, simultaneously entranced and scared at the possibilities, he quickly turns his attention back to the busty Hispanic hooker. The young Lolita's hopeful demeanor turns sad. Her lip quivers. A tear begins to form under one of her eyes. The businessman glances once more at the young Lolita. He quickly waves off the busty Hispanic hooker and guns the engine. The young Lolita watches as the businessman and his car disappear down the street. She exhales, smiles slightly, and wipes her tears. It's a concrete jungle, a land of lies and struggle. You keep to yourself if you want to stay alive. End. There, that's just a taste. A taste. Of what is beautiful about concrete jungle. Ron, what do you think about when you hear us reading that for you? You guys did a great job. I even heard you exhale. <laughs> yes, yes. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> no, you guys really did good. You put emotion into it. And yeah, I liked it. It was well done. Well, there's a ton of emotion in the script. Right. We're just reading it. You wrote that all. Oh, yeah, I know. You, but you guys brought it out, definitely. No doubt. Because I could visualize it in my mind. And, you know, and I always write something. I say, after you read it, could you see it? And they say, I could see it. And I go, yeah. okay, then I did my job. Well, I do think, especially with all of your history writing, your practice with it, your words, they form very, very specific images in a person's mind as they read that. And that can only come with somebody as practiced as you. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, uh, thanks. <laughs> Jack's going to get into a beat breakdown for our listeners, for anybody that hasn't read the script yet, so that they understand the action of this. So once he gets through this beat breakdown and through it, we're going to talk about some of the themes of your story. So yeah, it, it, it's framed around this poem that Ron wrote, and there are certain little plot lines that develop as you're hearing this voiceover narrator. You've got this dark, foreboding city. There's a businessman who's having an off-and-on relationship with this Lolita prostitute. There's also the uh, you've got Reggie, who's sort of the pimp that runs this little section of street that gets focused on. The, the, Ron, the, the chorus that keeps coming back in this about how it's a concrete jungle, a land of lies, you keep to yourself if you want to stay alive, or you'll wind up on the undertaker's shelf, just another human archive, is a little theme that keeps coming back as people move in and move out of this world and move in and move out of their lives. There's the old homeless man who Lolita has a bit of a relationship with, who then we find out also is the father of the coroner who keeps getting called out to these grisly scenes. Uh, there's a hitman that gets hired to take down Reggie as the story moves on. Uh, ultimately, the Lolita prostitute, as she ages throughout the course of the story, uh, becomes pregnant. She reconnects with the businessman from before, and it ends on a fairly hopeful note. Which is beautiful. Yes, and that's that's what I wanted to convey. And uh, people who read it say, yeah, I like how that ended. Because you're not really sure what's going to happen. But like the young business guy, the Wall Street guy, is kind of growing up. And he's realizing maybe he's going to have to take responsibility. And 
Um, I want people to think that he he got her pregnant, but now she was out of the game because actually he helped her get out of there and that he was going to grow up and maybe they were going to have a relationship. And then that's why I had sort of come back to the opening scene, but instead of it all being gray and dark, the sun shines through just a little bit. And that kind of gives a symbolic glimmer of hope that, you know, somebody's life in the story is going to change for the better. So listeners, the relationship that Ron is talking about specifically is between this businessman and the young Lolita who meet um, in the story. The script is incredibly artistic. So bear with us as we lay out some of these plot points and relationships for you. But the young Lolita and the businessman have a relationship early on, and then eventually the businessman gets her pregnant. Lolita is released as a prostitute due to some, uh, some murdering, nefarious dealings. Some murderings <laughs> that happens. <laughs> and then Ron uses this love story as a very hopeful backbone for the story. Ron, how does love play into a lot of the work that you write? Uh. Boy, um, I think it's in most most everything I write, even if it isn't a traditional love story. But I think people love something, even if it might not be another person, you know. Um, but I think it is a theme that comes back in a lot of my stories. Um, you know, I submitted um, uh, Blood Trigger, which is uh, probably my most successful feature script so far, and it's basically uh, about a female assassin wanting to get out of the business and protect her unborn child from the company that won't let her go. And so this character, April Rigetti, nicknamed the Tarantula, she basically is a loner, isn't very social, is, is very good at her job, you know, quick with the one-liners, can fight, knows weapons, but she's just because of her profession, she's she's sort of separated from society. But you know, Blood Trigger is kind of the title because she has this Tomcat Beretta 3032 weapon, and she kills with it. But the second meeting in that the blood trigger of her baby triggers her to change her life. Mm. Um, so she she comes to learn to love herself because she's trying to make a life for this baby that she's going to have later, but she's got to get out of her old life first. Um, So, but yeah, I think a lot of my stories are really dark and gritty. And um, I guess, cause I've seen a lot of that as a reporter and it's stuck with me. Um, And yeah, I think, I mean, I have written a traditional coming of age story with kids that became high school lovers and into college and all their trials and tribulations. But I guess, I guess in this world, I mean, deep down when you go around everything, I mean, I think love is, is, is probably present some way somehow in everybody's life. And in concrete jungle too, it really proves as a powerful force for good, evil, hope, greed, sex, redemption, Love is this coursing thing for each of the characters in very, very different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think everybody in that story is trying to find something better than they have. I mean, you've got the the aging prostitute who used to be, you know, I don't want to use a bad word, but she was it. And then she realizes the reactions from the men as she ages is that she's not going to be that first choice. And, you know, she's running out of time. She's got to find something 
else to do because she's no longer um, marketable, I guess is the way of saying it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and boobs uh, only only stay know, great for so long. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I'm I just kidding to know, all the mature women who have amazing boobs. It's fine. We love right. them. <laughs> yeah, we do. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for backing me up on that. <laughs> we'll move along. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, she had her redemption in that she was sick of being like abused by Reggie and she created a plot to get rid of him, but also at the same time to help the young Lolita have a life that, you know, maybe she imagined when she was younger. So in a way she showed her love for uh, the young Lolita, like almost seeing herself in a younger form. Like maybe if I'd had a chance, maybe if somebody had looked out for me, maybe I could have been better. And, And I think that moment for her gave her hope that, you know, she could get out too, and maybe there's something else she could do and, and still salvage what she has left as in some other form or fashion. And you're contrasting that love with a very gritty, visceral, at times violent, uh, dour uh, world that's being presented in, in, over the course of the narration. Is that important to you to sort of show the contrasts there? Uh, yeah, def- definitely. Um, I-, I always think like, um, as a writer, I'm trying to show more than the surface. I always want sub levels or subtext, um, on what you see and what really is going on in the interior lives of the characters. Um, yeah, I think it just makes the writing more rich if you can show, um, you know, what's happening on the surface and then what's happening on a sub level. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of work to do that. Um, I mean, like you say, because of all the people I've met, I've, I've kind of picked that up. Um, but it's not always easy to make it look easy. Um, when I read it again, I'm like, God, I sometimes wonder, how did I write that when I was 19? Exactly. Like, yeah. I, I, That's incredible to I, think about. Yeah, it's like, where did I come up with that, like, imagination or emotion and and then, like, pull it out, like, two years later and say, hey, this is really visual. I could build around this. and. And I did, and um, I think it's—I think it has won like five or six awards at film festivals. Yeah, congratulations on that, That's by great. the way. So, where do you think this comes from? How did you write this as a 19-year-old from Indiana? Um, I—I I have thought about that before, and I think actually um, it goes back to when I was a kid. Um, we didn't have Game Boys or Xboxes; we had our imaginations and. Um, when I was little, my brother and I were pretty inseparable. We'd be outside playing, climbing trees, playing Tarzan or Army Men. Or, um, we always had this thing where we, we, we were big comic book readers. And when we got done reading our comic books, um, not knowing what they'd be worth years later, we would cut out the characters. We would have... We'd always have a staid version, like the standard version of the character, like Spider-Man, in one action cut. So we had two, like almost like a stuntman for the, the staid character. And so we had all these heroes and villains and mixed DC and Marvel. And we would just play for hours because our mom would say, oh, my God, I could leave you in the room. And I could hear you talking out and doing dialogue, all this stuff. Oh, and, that's so and we, cool. Yeah. And we even had like a pecking order of like, now, now, you know, Spider-Man has to go before the Hulk because the Hulk has more powers. <laughs> and the same thing with, with the bad guys. It was like, well, Atuma goes before Dr. Doom. 
and we, we, we kind of had our own little story Bible that we didn't even understand at the time, but we knew the powers. And like, I think in the end, it was like Superman and Galactus were the last ones standing because they were the most powerful. And so we crossed DC and Marvel and yeah, we could do that. Or we'd watch horror movies. We were big horror movie buffs. Like we'd have to take naps during like the early evening so we could wake up at 10 o'clock to watch the creature feature. And we'd watch it. (laughs) And then we'd watch it. And the next day we would like play out all the lines. And somehow we remembered all the lines in the scenes. And I'm like, wait a minute, Sean, we got to slow down a little bit. This is an hour and a half movie. We're going to be done in 80 minutes. We got to pace it better. And so these are the kind of things that I remember, like, I must have, like, trained myself and didn't realize it. Because I really didn't start writing scripts until 2007 or eight. Yeah, recently um, then, in the life of a writer. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, so I think those things I did as a kid informed my imagination, which I think I still have pretty much, um, is what, you know, is what made me come up with this story of a place I never visited. I wanted to ask you, in the script, as much as it's, you know, you took this poem and you adapted it, along with the rhythm that the narrator of a poem has, just the general rhythm of the spoken word in this in this script, I feel like the script also has a very visual rhythm to it. You You meet the queen prostitute and then cause it's like a cause and effect thing then she'll lose business to to the younger lolita there's the busy arcade and the owner is unhappy kids playing ball who are then attacked by the gang was that something you did on purpose as you were adapting this from a poem into a script was sort of build in this what i feel is a very very deliberate visual rhythm to it um yeah it's it's, you know I, i i hate to like try and analyze it too much because it scares me if i really understand it i might lose it um, uh, and not that I'm comparing myself to F. Scott Fitzgerald, but, um, Go ahead, definitely do it. when he, when he started, I know I'm not going to do that. <laughs> when he started, when he started analyzing his writing, he lost it. It's just like, he just didn't accept okay. whatever magic he had. And he thought too much. So I try not to overanalyze it, but I think from watching so many movies and, you know, I try to go at least twice a week if I can, um, I think subconsciously you build in those story rhythms in your mind. And, and honestly, when it's really flowing, the characters are just telling you what to say and do. You're not doing it. Um, they're kind of like your friends in the room, and they, they kind of dictate where things are going. And, and sometimes that three-act structure, it isn't really a three-act structure, but I think all of the characters sort of have that throughout the story. Um, but, yeah, I can't really explain it, but there was definitely enough in the poem to build around um, the characters in the poem and then also add some additional characters to kind of flesh it out a little bit. But again, when I wrote the the script, I think it only took me like three or four days, maybe like two, three hour sessions. And I was pretty happy with it. Um, I hate to say this because it drives other writers nuts and I don't tell them, but usually the first draft is what I go with and then I just enter it and stuff. Because and win a million my... awards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I go back and tweak from time to time if I get some decent notes that I think are helpful. You know, and it's usually tweaking. I've never had to, like, blow up and start over, per se. Um, but a lot of times these things just gestate in my mind for a while before they ever slam down onto the computer page. 
And then when I know my story, it just kind of flows. And because um, I have a lot of writer friends who say, "Oh, I got halfway through and gave up," and I said, "Well, that's because you didn't know your story. That's yeah. why you stopped. It's like you got to know your beginning and ending and middle." And and I've always, if I can write the first scene and write the last scene, I know I'm going to finish because I don't exactly know how it's going to get from A to Z. And often the characters change what I think is going to happen, and it gets to A to Z, but it's a different way than I imag- uh, initially imagined. Um, but yeah, if I can write that first scene and last scene, I know I can do it. Well, and some of the visuals that are in the that are in the script are really obviously coming from the dialogue of the poem. I feel like some of the scenes that you had to build were easier than others, just based on this poem framework that you're building off of. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I could visualize like, like the homeless man in his box the whole time. Um, and, you know, because the way I wrote that, that was one of the, like, part of the poems that I really liked the best because that was what I mostly saw when I did eventually get to New York City where these homeless people all wrapped up in blankets and living in these boxes and it was cold and they barely had anything to eat and there was always some kind of alcohol to kind of dull their pain or senses. And, you know, it was really sad, but I wanted to kind of, like, visualize that in a way and give him some dignity and, you know, obviously the young Lolita, you saw she had a heart and that she would from time to time stop by and give him some food to keep him going. Yeah. Um, she, you know, she obviously, um, you know, had some kind of warmth and emotions. And, you know, she was probably the best character as far as the most humane in the whole story, even though she was doing probably the worst job you could do in the world. Um she probably, you know, had the most emotion and depth to her. And, and I think that's what eventually brought out the, the the business guy who probably was shallow and money-driven and all about himself. But in time, he changed over the years from having his encounters with her. And, you know, she kind of made him more humane and responsible. Do you think that the archetypes you play with in this script are definitely connected to how you dealt with comic book archetypes as a child oh my god this is a tough question i've never even thought of that <laughs> welcome oh, to boy. script shop oh, you're a psychologist um <laughs> uh, disclaimer <laughs> not <laughs> and you're laughing fiendishly <laughs> uh, well that's you know i like it <laughs> um, no that's a great question because you're actually stumping me i usually i usually my mind is really quick um wow Boy, I'm going to have to think about that. Okay, we'll just leave it open-ended then. Let the listeners yeah, decide I for mean, themselves. God, you got me thinking, and that's good. Hey, let's see what happens over dinner, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married, just kidding. Are you um, paying? <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying anything. Not anymore. <laughs> no, I said, are you paying? Oh, oh, yeah, well, sure. You know, I like talking to people. Why not? <laughs> um, you know, I have a I have another question in here too. We do play with the theme of death. The coroner comes into the script a lot. Um, you know, we could see this as being the great equalizer for all the people in the world. But what I would I would really like to know how death plays to you in this script. Well, I think in these for these particular characters, like every day is a matter of life or death. Every decision they make is going to determine whether they have one more day on the street. And sometimes they survive another day and sometimes uh, they don't. And 
I just think in, in film, like life and death is like the highest form of drum, drama you can create because that keeps people's attention. Because I think most people are, are aware of mortality and especially Americans, they fear death the most, I think, of any culture. Um, but I think it raises the stakes, like when there's always life and death involved. And yeah, the coroner was the sort of the grim reminder that uh, bad choices can lead to death. You know, I think what we had the the busty Hispanic hooker rather than get in the car with the Wall Street guy and probably would have been fine. She ended up making another choice that we don't see in the script and she ends up getting murdered. Um, You know, obviously Reggie had it coming and I don't think anybody feels sorry for him when the hitman blew him away. The poor Latino boy who he gets dragged into the street gang and you see that he doesn't last either. Um, So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, whether you're young or old in in this particular story, life and death is there every single minute. And I think these people realize that. And even the game arcade owner, like he's dying inside slowly. He might not be in a world where he's going to get shot, but he's dying inside slowly because he doesn't know what else to do with his life. And he just, you know, he's hanging around these kids all day that just play games and, um, See, I just think it's a way to always up the ante and the drama in a film. And everybody's sort of looking, all the characters in this are sort of looking for just just a piece. It's just like any other kind of life. You're just looking for a little something, and some people get it and some people don't. That arcade owner near the end picks up the pimp's hat, and it's sort of almost symbolic of, okay, well, this is him getting like a little slice of the pie. But then that the grizzled construction worker who doesn't hit the lottery, uh, he doesn't get anything, any kind of a reward for his suffering. Exactly. And and those are just little tiny things that I, I, I add as depth to the characters that, you know, you obviously picked it up, but they're little things that people might overlook or not put in the script. Um, and again, that goes back to really being observant of people over time. And I always like to tell people, I said, oh, I've got so many villains I haven't written yet, you know, because <laughs> I used to have to cover county commission, school board, water board. And, you know, those guys are politicians and they just, uh, you know, it's just like you could just write all day on these guys. So in in terms of, um, you know, pre-production or producing this work, would you really want a director who would interconnect these characters in different scenes? How do you think you could deal with keeping the story fluid in terms of an actual storyline visually? Well, when you, when you read it, I can see how, like, when you read the narrator, like when you did your scene um, with Jack, it's like it does read, I mean, it read well, but if you read it on the page, it might look a little clunky, but if you think about it visually, these words would be overlapping the visuals that I wrote. So I think it really, with the fluid fluidity of the visuals, with the fluidity of the poem, I think it would be very like uh, almost otherworldly and like a dreamscape of, and just kind of like raising these people up to a level beyond what they are. And like I said, I would, I would definitely love to see it in black and white because I think it's, that gritty that it should be in black and white. I think that would make it almost a, another character because New York city, I used to see in black and white when I was younger, I just thought it was this dark foreboding place. 
and and it is still in some ways, but like they've kind of Disneyized it and made it better for the tourists. But um, I mean, I've always said in a perfect world, and you know, of course, you'd need a lot of money, but I would love to have Johnny Depp be the narrator because I loved what he did with Gonzo, the documentary on Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, he has a very fluid voice, and he really reads reads lines like poetry, and I just. I mean, if there was any way that he would ever be interested, if I could get it to him, then I think you could get people jump on board and make it, because this would be a very expensive short to make. There's no doubt. Um, And I did have a director who will be unnamed at this point who was very excited about it, actually said it kept him from giving up um, on filmmaking. And when he read this, he wanted to make it. He said he wanted to direct it. So he went to the American film market about two years ago looking for a producer and funding, uh, came up, you know, empty, and then he just kind of gave up. And I thought he was really in a story that he'd keep trying, but he just kind of said, uh, I'm just going to move on to something else. So I still have it, but it's, it's not one of these shorts, like two people in a room that you could make and it doesn't cost anything. It would be, you know, probably on a scale of what some people pay for indie features, I would think. Um, how that's ever going to happen, I'm not sure. Um, but I have it in my mind what it would look like, and um, it would be kind of cool to kind of populate it with New York New York City character actors that you've seen on TV before, like Louise Guzman or Steve Buscemi. I could even see Mickey Rourke doing the hitman. Um, maybe Chloe Grace Moretz as the young Lolita or Elle Fanning, something like that. I mean, when I write characters... I'm always writing, like, in my mind, A-listers, even if it's a short or a feature, and I always think of five people who could play the role in case I ever get in that room and they ask me that question, like, who do you think should play? You know, on one hand, they want you to say, well, that's up to the director and the casting director, but if you're really asking, here's who I think I would want to play. So that's how I kind of write, because if I can visualize actors that I know who can play the role, it makes it so much easier to write it. And a lot of time, having those A-list names will really just help communicate with people about what the tone is of that character or the direction that you want it to head into. So if you don't get that A-lister, you can also find somebody who feels like them when they're performing. Well, that that's correct. I mean, you know, that, that's absolutely true. There's other people that are good actors that are consistent. They're just not, you always see them, but they're not, at the A-list, but they put in good work all the time, and they maybe do 15, 20 roles a year. You might not necessarily remember their name, but you always know they gave a good performance. So, yeah, there's always that order you can go down and find if you can't get your first choice. Yeah, and you're speaking a language. You're, when you're describing certain, again, getting back to the idea of archetypes, it, it's a way of communicating to other people exactly the sort of look and feel that you're going for with this piece. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because people can relate the char- these actors to some of the roles they play, like, oh, yeah, this guy does play gritty roles um, and, and that kind of thing. And you might even offer an opportunity for someone to play a role that they've never even had a shot before. Yeah, break I mean, out and do something different. Right. Like when I, um, when I even think of the, um, the aging prostitute, I honestly think of somebody who's not really in the game anymore, but um, Michelle Johnson, she was pretty big in the 90s. And um, going back to we love women in their 40s and 50s with the big boobs, 
Oh, oh, nice bring back. (laughs) Can't forget about the boobs. Good job, Ron. I'm observant. I listen. Um, Yeah, but I'm actually Facebook friends with her, and she does music videos now. And, oh, my God, that woman is incredibly sultry. It's just like I could see her playing that role, but I don't think she's doing much acting anymore, but I think she's trying to get back into it. So, like, maybe you can entice her to get back in the game with this role, and maybe it would put her back on track because I – I really thought she was pretty good in the 90s, and somehow she just disappeared. I think she had some personal issues that pervade Hollywood sometimes. But Well, that's understandable. Yeah. You know, just as a reminder that, of course, performers have personal lives, too, and those yeah, choices right. take them in ways we may not anticipate. But, you know, you bring up, too, especially with a piece like this that is so artistic and so unique and has so much depth to it, you do have a lot of equity in terms of getting the project produced because it's a very, very different type of interesting artistic film. It's, it's Jack brought this up. It feels like he said music videos from when music videos were good. No, it it just, it's, it's so, it's so very specific and outside of the norm. I would think this would get you all sorts of attention. And you said you've won a bunch of awards for it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it has. I mean, and like, you obviously both connect to it, and obviously the festivals where it won, it connected, but I, I'm not sure it would connect with everybody because it, it is not a traditional uh, story arc uh, A to Z. Um, and, again, I'm, I'm going to preface and say I'm not convinced, I'm not, what's uh, uh, the comparing myself to Tarantino, but it's de- a definitely a different way of writing a script. I mean, you know, he's known for his three stories, overlapping characters, time out of sequence scenes. And this is like using a poem to kind of uh, generate the action forward. So it's a lot different. Um, I wasn't, I thought when I wrote it, it worked. And I know the director who was interested in it at one time said, I read it three different ways. I read it with just, the action and the dialogue and it worked for me. I read it just as the poem and it worked for me and I read it together and it worked for me. So I thought, well, then I did my job because it doesn't look like it was easy to write. But as I said, having the poem as the, as the scaffolding or the base, the characters just kind of came out of that and the action I created, but I intentionally kept the dialogue to a minimum because you've got the narrator basically telling us what's going on. And um, I know voiceover is not always a popular thing, and it it can sometimes be used as a crutch by a writer because they can't quite get the scene the way they want it. But in this this particular piece, I think it complements the visuals that I, I put in there as well. Yeah, I think it totally works. I, it, it, building off of the framework from that poem, everything really makes sense. There's a really cool flow to it. There are certain characters that do have arcs. I, I think it, I really dig this script a lot, Ron. This is one of my favorites. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate you guys being interested enough to take the time and talk to me. And um, I was like, I knew I could fill 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Script Shop is totally committed to to talking to you about your work. We want to help you find your people by just spreading the word. So could you tell us what you're working on currently? Do you have anything in the works or anything that you're revisiting that you just want to mention? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's three things uh, right now. Um, I'm, uh, we're, I'm executive producing a short script uh, called All Tapped Out that I wrote Um 
It's basically a Hitchcock-like thriller, a short script about a tap dancer uh, who's in the throes of a nervous breakdown. I love the sound of this. Yeah, and you think you think one thing is happening, but there's little bread breadcrumbs and clues left along the way that by the end, it's a total 360 of what you think is happening. And it's just like everybody who's read it just kind of go <gasps> at the end like that. And they just kind of like, oh, my God. And and this, this actually won something called the American Gym Literary Festival two years ago. And the prize was they paid me a grand and they were supposed to produce the movie. And I thought that's the best kind of prize, get your movie made. And they had a year to do it. And for whatever reason, it just didn't come to fruition. I think they had a couple producers lined up at one point, but then they bolted for features or something. And then in April, the option was up and the rights came back to me. They had to pay me another 500 And I was just kind of like, wow, I'm so disappointed. I, yeah. I thought this sucker would be on the film circuit this year or the festival circuit. People would get to see it. And it just didn't happen. So I just said, well, I'm going to try and do it myself. So... I'm plunking into the savings and, um, you know, to get it made. And I have a director who's made seven features. His last feature had Paul Sorvino in it. And I watched three of his films at AOF in Vegas a month ago. And so he's directing. I have an actress that's a good friend of mine who she's an up and comer. She's starting to get booked in features left and right. And so I'm hoping we can shoot this sucker by February. I've got to come up with a little more money. Um, but I, I think it's going to happen. And then writing-wise, I'm kind of toggling back and forth between a short called um, Reluctant, which is sort of a uh, unbreakable with sixth graders, where a sixth-grade kid kind of realizes he has superpowers, but he's afraid to show them, and something bad happens, and he eventually has to come to terms with who he is, that he's different, and he's not just a kid, but that he has superpowers. And then I'm working on something called Mudline, which is basically, I think it's topical for this time, but I said it in the 90s because I know it would set off too many emotions in the current political climate. Um, But it's basically about an investigative journalist who, it's a comedy, so it kind of softens up the story a little. But he kind of becomes part of the news too often. As we see newscasters on TV, they, they become celebrities instead of reporting the news. And... He gets fired from his job, but then he gets hired onto a TMZ-type show that's sort of a hybrid between, like, you know, Carson and Nightline that Ted Koppel used to host. And basically, he kind of jokes about everything in the news, and, you know, he makes a mistake with some of his reporting, and somebody gets almost sent to the electric chair, and and then there's a sub-story sub about Elvis sightings, because that's kind of like... (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah. So in the end, he finds himself again and, and realizes what it means to be a principal journalist and reporter, which, you know, that's sort of a timely topic. You know, you see a lot in the news. Like, I mean, one, I was a journalist and, and I totally believe it's important that we have journalism that does good stories. But also, I, I'm, I'm very disturbed by the whole infotainment society that it's become because it's no longer about always reporting the truth. It's about creating provocative drama and and talking heads and screaming and arguments for ratings and it's just not what journalism was supposed to be and so I guess you know I'm still maybe that at heart um, that I would like to see a little bit better you know out of our journalists I suppose.
Yeah. But I'm doing it with a comedy set in the 90s because if I did it in the present day, it would just... It wouldn't be funny, would it? No, it wouldn't. It'd be too real. (laughs) Well, Ron, I would love to read more of your work, but I know how to get in touch with you. How could somebody find you if they also want to get involved in your projects? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a screenwriting site uh, called Ron Podell Screenwriting at dot, dot com. I think it's either screenwriting or screenwriter.com, but it comes up. There's not too many Ron Podells. Um, I'm on <laughs> Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, my contact information is on my website. Um, so, yeah, I, I think people could find me. And if you Google me, um, I, I come up quite a bit of you know, names in film festivals for awards and so forth. So, and I'm on, on IMDb as well. So yeah, people could find me. Great. Well, Ron, this has been an incredible conversation for me. This flew by. It really did. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day today to drop in and chat with us about everything. Okay. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I appreciate you guys having interest in, um, wanting me on the show. I mean, I enjoy doing this. I mean, um, and I really don't even prepare. I just say whatever comes, comes, and hopefully I can just... You're just that good. Oh, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I think I learned from the other side, always interviewing people, you know, so I think I kind of learned what makes a decent interview. Like, I figured you guys asked some good questions, but I'm going to have to think about the one you did ask, and maybe I'll have to get back to you on that one. I'd love that. You thank you. dumped me. Well, and we can also talk, too, about how Fin Fang Foom fits into that uh, bad guy hierarchy uh, when you're doing your mixed world with uh, Atuma and everybody else. (laughs) Jack's a big nerd. Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to flash a little credential there at you. Yeah, that was was one, because I'm not sure I remember that one. Oh, come on, Fin Fang Foom, the big green dragon? <laughs> I don't think I remember that. Well, anyway, that I don't, that's neither here nor there. I was thrilled that you threw a Tuma out there. That was a deep cut. Oh, okay. <laughs> you remembered him from Submariner. Absolutely, huh? yeah. He's one of Namor's guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got that. Did you get that, Allison? No. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking, Jack, come on. Let's wrap this up. <laughs> You're better off. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, Ron, we're going to quiet you down to do our closing announcements for all of our listeners, but we had such a great time with you. All right. I had a great time as well. Thanks so much again for having me on your show. Ron, Thank thanks you. a lot. And listeners, again, you can tell we're having a great time talking about these scripts. We'd love to read yours if you're interested in being on the show and sharing your work with us. You can send those in to scriptshopthepodcast at gmail.com. Scriptshopthepodcast at gmail.com. And if you don't want to send anything in but you still dig the show, please uh, get into iTunes, leave us a rating, give us a thumbs up, a subscribe. Uh, and also, again, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Maybe a Snapchat, if push comes to shove, we'll figure it all out. But please uh, give us a follow. Uh, We would love to uh, have you be a part of things. Thanks very much. And uh, till next week, cut. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for